Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Man, we got so much going on this year. This is going to be good. Do not say, I know, I know adults making friends is really hard. Um, but we are like spoon feeding it. We got Dungeons and Dragons, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, Basketball. We run the gamut, okay? We run the gamut. Uh, welcome, everyone. My name is Russ. I'm one of the pastors here. As we said, uh, our tagline is wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Would you join me in prayer before we kick off in today's message? Lord, we do want to hear your voice. Quiet our hearts. We're listening. I'm so grateful. Um, I'm so grateful for people that we can trust, walk side by side, not agree on everything, but know that deeper than this is your grace toward us. We are, we are saved by grace. And if there are people in this room who aren't sure of that and don't know what they think about you, Jesus, let them know that, you, that you're cool with where they are right now that you see them, that you want to know them, you want to speak to them. Lord, we are in this community. We are a preview of the world that's coming. Your church is a preview of the world that's coming. So would you speak to us, would you challenge us? Those things that we hold so tightly in our hearts, would you challenge them? so that we can follow you with open hands. It's in your name we pray, amen. Hey, one other announcement I forgot to to mention before the prayer. We, um, we're growing as a community, which is awesome. But what that means is it can be really easy for us to forget um, that Hope Brooklyn is not just the people you see up here. You're Hope Brooklyn. We're Hope Brooklyn. Um, And in in, in the interest of not Uh, allowing hierarchies to develop where everyone looks to leadership to do stuff. We want to figure out and think more of how how we can care for one another, how we can stay flat as a community. Um, And so we're going to be putting on some focus groups led by Sharon Chu, who is uh, our care team, prayer team coordinator uh, this summer. Um, We'd love to solicit your input so that we can figure out better ways um, as we grow for us to care for one another. So be on the lookout for emails about that where you can sign up and participate. We're gonna do three this summer. If you don't get the emails, fill out the connection card and you will. Cool. All right. If you're joining us for the first time, we are in a series called The Politics of Jesus. The Politics of Jesus. And just as a brief refresher, I can't go through all of it, but as a brief refresher, when we say the word politics, so that's obviously, we have different uh, understandings of what that means. Politics is, at its simplest, it's dealing with how we live. It's dealing with how we live. The ways a people organizes themselves directed toward a common good. That is politics. The the ways that we organize and order our existence that uh, suggest these are the things that we value most of all. So there's no such thing. If you say, I'm not political, I cry foul. That's not true. We're all political. Being alive is political. How you treat people is political. How you spend money is political. Uh, How you interact in your job is political. Because all of it is 
oriented toward a way that you say, this is the best version of living. This is the highest good. This is the good life. So what we want to ask in the politics of Jesus is how does Jesus orient his followers? What does he say is the good life? And we kicked off at the very beginning and we talked about the sin of Jeroboam. And the sin of Jeroboam was quite simply this. Anytime that God is used as a means toward another political end, he's not cool with that, all right? So when we talk about the politics of Jesus, we need to be clear that we are talking about what he's inviting his followers to be and to care about, independent of how that might affect America. Now, to be sure, if the followers of Jesus are being, are living fully into the vision Jesus offers us, it will affect our societies, it absolutely will. But that's not the primary intention. The primary intention is for us, those who follow Jesus, for us to be today what the world is called to be ultimately. And if you're in this room and you're like, well, I wouldn't call myself a follower of Jesus, that's totally cool. You get a ringside seat of how Jesus' followers should be living. So you can check us on it, all right, when we're not doing it. So, sin of Jeroboam. Secondly, we said Jesus' politics are the politics of Jubilee. And that's just quite simply this. Uh, in, in ancient Israel, every 50th year, on the Day of Atonement, there was a day where all the spiritual debts that Israelites had racked up uh, with God were canceled like that. Grace was offered. All your wrongdoing, all your wrong thinking, all your, your, your violent words toward each other, um, all the ways that you had uh, acted with self-preservation and, and not with generosity, all of it was forgiven in an instant. But the year of Jubilee also went a step further where not only were spiritual debts forgiven, but all social and economic debts, which meant if land was sold, it went back to the original uh, holder. And all structures of power were canceled and reset. So basically the game was completely reset in Israel, which is a pretty radical idea. And we said when, in Luke's gospel, when Jesus shows up, how he starts his ministry, he, um, he quotes a passage from Isaiah, which is a Jubilee passage. So the politics of Jesus are the politics of Jubilee. So not only are we receiving um, our, our debts toward God are canceled, wiped out, but now we get to also cancel social and economic debts. We get to live into a new reality. So that's the next thing we said. Then, a couple weeks back, we looked at structures of Cain. Cain and Abel story. And the structures of Cain, at its simplest, are forms of political structures that commit violence toward others. That commit violence. And the reason why they commit violence is because we're afraid of death. We're afraid of dying, so we want to preserve what we have. We want to preserve our name um, and sort of defend ourselves against one another. And it's easy for us in the West to go, whoa, 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 I cry foul. I'm not violent. And what we uh, aren't able to see is that we've transferred, as a people, we've transferred our violence into the state or into the market. So maybe, no, you're not physically the violent one toward another individual, but our violence is done uh, in more structures, less against individuals. So what we're looking at then are where are these structures of Cain that we live among that are committing violence toward others, and how can we, because we're not people of Cain, we're people of the cross. We are people who would rather than inflict violence would receive it, as Jesus did. He went to the cross and he died 
rather than retaliate. So we said to follow Jesus is not about what we fight for, but what we die for. So we're asking questions of how can we, as people of the cross, enter into our environments, our industries, our structures that are all around us, that perpetuate violence, and how can we imagine alternatives? How can we be people that offers grace? All right? And now what we're doing is we're spending the rest of the series examining certain arms of, of uh, sectors and societal structures and asking where is it that structures of Cain are present and how do we as a people of Jubilee enter in and imagine alternatives? And today we're talking about the economy and business and money. Sound good? Oh yeah, I see some smiles on some faces right now. This is gonna be a good start to June. It's gonna be a good start. So we're gonna read from Luke's gospel. We're gonna have it on the screen behind. Apparently um, the screen, uh, the, the main one we used was like ripped and broken. So we're going a little alternative. So if you can't see that, pull out your smartphones. Hopefully you can, but I'm gonna read it to you as well. So Luke's gospel. Here's what we read. Someone in the crowd said to him, him meaning Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night, your life will be demanded from you then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it is with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. All right, so a couple questions. The, the primary one, if you're like me, uh, that I read a text like this and I'm thinking about political structures, the primary question I have, is Jesus a capitalist or a socialist? Anyone else think that question? I certainly do. Like, is he a capitalist? or socialist? And that's, there's a version of that question asked to him. That, that's really what he's dealing with. Because the guy says, teacher, tell my brother to in, divide the inheritance with me, right? If Jesus says divide the inheritance, he's a socialist. Let's make it equal all the way across. If Jesus says, no, the inheritance was left to him, regardless if it was fair or not, that's the law, it's the way it works, he's a capitalist. Now I'm being overly simplistic, but I do think we're getting at the impulse behind it. Are you, Jesus, are you a capitalist or a socialist? And just like Jesus always does, he doesn't take the bait. He never goes there. Instead, what does he say? He said, man, who made me the judge and arbiter between you? It's as if he's saying, whether capitalist or socialist, that's kind of not the issue. Both theoretically could work and both theoretically can do tremendous harm. But deeper than the economic structures, are the hearts that fill it. And so he says, he points out, he gets to the heart of the matter. He goes, beware of all kinds of greed, which can manifest themselves abundantly in both capitalism and socialism. Beware 
of all kinds of greed. Now, if you're like me, I read that and I go, I'm off the hook, right? Because we in the West, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna set the, the, the terms here. You and I in this room, we are very, very rich, okay? Let's just go ahead. Let's not pretend like, oh, there's degrees of, of uh, abundance and poverty and we're on the low end. No, no, no. If you have a roof over your head, if you're not gonna run out of food by Friday, if you have a job or someone that you live with has a job, we are wealthy. Let's go ahead and set those terms. You and I in this room are very wealthy. That's okay. Let's talk based on that. And the second thing, even though he won't answer what structure, I do think Jesus makes it very clear throughout the gospels that it's really hard to be materially rich and a follower of him. It's really hard. In one gospel, he'll even say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for, for us rich people to be saved. Easier. Why? Because material prosperity can easily push out the voice of God. All of us, all of us, we have certain things that we trust in and we were created to trust in the voice of God, which is still and small and can speak very illogically and irresponsibly sometimes. Constantly speaking to us how to, how to deal with people, how to use resources. And it's very easy for our trust, which should be daily in who God is and who, uh, in his presence in our lives, it's so easy for that to be swayed from him to sort of being able to fend for ourselves, right? We, we, we trust God, but we don't trust God at the bedrock. We trust God insofar as we have a job and have discretionary uh, income. But if it gets to the absolute root of existence itself of leave this job or give this amount of money away, which would seem very irresponsible, do we really trust God there? I'm gonna speak for myself and I'd say, I'm not sure. My, my heart would quiver a little bit. Or worse, worse, where it's not just about fending for ourselves, but it becomes about actually wanting more. Wanting more than we have. Not just being content and like, this is okay, I just wanna bunker in, but I actually want more, more of this, more of that. It's been found, studies have found, they have, they have empirically proven that our happiness does not depend on objective conditions. So your health, your wealth, your community, your happiness does not depend on that. But on the relationship between those objective things and your subjective um, expectations of them. That's where happiness is found. So you can be poor and grateful and have a content life and you can be rich and isolated and coveting and have a bitter life. And in the West, you and I, we're conditioned to want more. We just are. We're conditioned to always want more. And that's what Jesus is starting to get at here. That's what he's getting. He won't name the structure that, that is best fit, but he will say that it is hard to be materially rich and a follower of him. And how do we know this? Because he says the land of a rich man produced abundantly. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And the man was surprised. What should I do with this surplus, he asked. He wasn't expecting it. Which means he attributed the land's production to a certain degree 
to his skill. He subtly began to believe in that question that his skill earned this, that he deserved it. In a sense, what we're talking about is privilege. But I know that word is thrown around a lot. But one of my favorite definitions of privilege in all of its forms came from uh, my seminary. And uh, he said, uh, the professor said, privilege is waking up on third base and thinking you hit a triple. That's privilege. Waking up on third base and be like, I just hit that triple. And it's, it's tough because I don't want to take anything away from us in this room and how hard people work. Absolutely. When I look at my own life, I can see that I have worked extremely hard um, to put myself in a certain situation with my wife. But if I really pull back, if I really look at the fullness of my life, I recognize that I was born into a family where education was a non-negotiable. I was going to go to college. It was from the very earliest days. I was born into a family where my mom read books to me all the time as a child. I learned to love reading from her. I got my first job at my dad's company at the YMCA. Yes, it was a counselor to kids, so it was the worst, but, <laughs> but I got it. <laughs> I don't know if that's privilege or not, actually. <laughs> I got my college internship through my family's connections. That was it, and you could say my grades deserved it, sure, but I still got it and I got the interview because of my family's connections. I was able to go to college because I received scholarships. See back to the whole education thing. And I had people who helped me know where to look for scholarships. So it's so easy to think that what we have was through our hands alone. We earned it, we deserved it. But really, if we really pull back, we recognize that there are so many other hands and voices that allowed us to get where we are. The land produced abundantly, not this guy's skill. The land produced abundantly. But what does he say? He says, I'll pull down my barns and I'll build larger ones. And I will say, soul, you done well. Great job, soul. Take it easy, eat, drink, be merry. Now we're told he's a rich man, which means he already has barns to store his grain. He had barns. So the issue, the issue is that when he saw that he had surplus and his reaction was go, whoa, what do I do with this? His first instinct was not to say, God, what do I do with this? His first instinct was, what do I do with this? I earned it. I deserve it. I know what I'll do. I'll tear down these barns and I'll build bigger ones. And when that happens, when we think, oh yeah, look what I made, look what I've done, look what I've earned, then we think we deserve something. And that tension between I've worked hard for something, which is true, to I deserve it, is toxic. It's very toxic. He viewed his resources, his produce, he viewed it as his, that it was from his hands and he achieved it. But that's not how Jesus views it. Jesus wants to take us from viewing things as mine, from my wealth to his gifts, meaning God's gifts. Because he's trying to say in this parable, don't forget that the Jubilee started 
when God forgave your debts toward him. Don't forget that it all is through his love for you. I was so overcome singing the Reckless Love of God song because the reality is, friends, you wanna know what grace is? Grace is you deserve nothing and you get everything. You deserve absolutely nothing and you get everything. And we know this because this guy's saying, what am I gonna do? I have all this surplus, I'm gonna build bigger barns. And God says, you fool. That's one thing you never wanna be called by God, all right? You fool. You forget that while you're trusting in your riches, there's a deeper currency in play, your life and death. There's a deeper currency, your life and death. You're dying this very evening. And then what does it matter? What does it matter? Who will these bigger barns and more grain belong to? So it is, says Jesus, for those who store up for themselves and are not rich toward God. Now there's debate within theological circles whether it's possible uh, to have wealth and be a Christian. Now you heard what I said, it's really hard to have wealth for us in the West, it just is. It's hard because it's so easy for us. We say we trust God, but we really don't. We trust God insofar as we have that 401k and we have, we have a nice pad. Then we'll trust him with, with over and uh, above, but not at the bedrock. But there's debate whether it's, it's possible to have wealth and be a Christian. And I think it can be done, which I know is very convenient for me to say in the West, but I think it can be done. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying is you can't be materially rich at all. If it was, he would have said, so it is with those who store up for themselves and do not give it all to others. But that's not what he said. He said, so it is with those who store up for themselves and are not rich toward God. We have ample examples of people, the people of God with prosperity, but if happiness is not about our objective wealth, but how we view it, then it's all about the attitude of our hearts. Do you view it? And like, honestly, I'm not letting us off the hook here. Do you view it as yours? Or do you view it all as his? Every cent, every resource that you have, every element of privilege of your education, of your faculties, is it all his? that he can ask to use in any way possible? Or there's some things that you're like, no, this is mine. What I earned, therefore I deserve, moving from that to what he's given me, therefore is his to use however he wants. And that can be with a lot, and that can be with a little. And then when you start like living into that, it's remarkable how you see God come through. I wanna challenge some people in this room. I know there's some people in this room that don't see God come through. You're like, where is God? I wanna challenge you and say, it's because you're not giving him a chance. You're not really giving him a chance. You're not actually putting your trust in him coming through. You're sort of holding on with one hand and be like, we'll show up with this other. That's not the way it works. You gotta go two hands open. What might he challenge you? Can he really speak to you and challenge you to give, to offer, to live in a radical and maybe irresponsible way? And would you be willing to do it? And I know it's terrifying because he's done it to me multiple times. And every time I still get nervous, wondering what if he doesn't come through this time? But he has. 
And the stories are, are boundless. Just this last week, Anna and I were in Nashville for our denomination's annual conference. And this church was sharing a story um, where they had $1.2 million in reserves for the rainy day. And, um, and they felt God saying kind of this parable, like you're holding on to it. It's not actually mine. You want me to deal with your operations budget, but not actually this. And they had a couple missionaries who were going and they felt like God said, give it all away to them. Give it all away, 1.2 millions, deplete your savings. And they did. They wrote a check, they gave it all away. The next year, their church brought in 1.7 million above and beyond what they budgeted for. I'm not saying that's gonna happen to you just like that, but I'm saying, <laughs> but I'm saying, those stories happen all the time. I've shared this in my own story. Uh, when Anna and I first moved to New York and um, she was just starting her company, I was a pastoral resident at Hope Astoria. I had just graduated, so we had nothing. And uh, we had uh, moving expenses and credit card bills coming due. Um, and we're like, how are we gonna pay this? And we felt God say, I want you to tithe, I want you to give 10% to the church that you're a part of. And I'm like, I. That's the opposite direction, God. What are you talking about? But I've seen him do this before, so I said, okay. And we were terrified. I'm gonna be honest. It wasn't like, aha, I take the, the pen of faith and I write the check, you know? I was terrified. I was terrified. I wrote the check. It's so cathartic to do it, though, guys, to be generous. It's so cathartic. It feels like, forgive me, but it feels like you feel this burden release where you're kind of giving a certain finger to wealth and saying, you're not my God. I trust in the living God. And, it's so, and it has a hold on you and you don't even realize it. Like, you're not my God. So I wrote the check, we wrote the check. And two days before our credit card bills were due, we received a letter in the mail from a relative, I had no idea it was coming, with a check in the mail for more money than we needed to pay our bills. I had no idea it was coming. I'm not saying God will do that specifically like that for you, but I'm saying he does it. He does it. My brother, uh, he was in tough, he's a branch manager at a bank. He was in tough straits one time. And um, he was really praying for a loan to come into his branch. And then he saw one day that a loan for $200,000 came in. And he was, he was floored. He was like, answered a prayer. And then as he looked deeper, he realized that the loan was actually, uh, should have been credited to the branch next door to him. So like, what do I do? He did the right thing. He said, this isn't mine. This is this other branch. And when he called the branch director uh, or the branch manager of the other branch, she was floored. She's like, no one does this. You could have claimed it as yours and no one would have known. It's like, it's not mine. I trust God more than I trust wealth. Fast forward a couple months later and he brought in the $1 million loan. Came out of nowhere. And then he brought in another $400,000 loan. He had one of the highest um, um, returns or whatever, I don't know what the terminology is, but his bank performed higher than a lot of other branches. I'm not saying that's gonna happen just like that, but I'm saying it happens. It happens. You don't see God come through because you think you deserve something. Therefore, we hoard it. In the name of being fiscally responsible, we hoard it. We're afraid, we hedge our bets. I think what Jesus is saying is you better watch out. Don't trust yourself. Watch out. Every morning, wake up, look at your bank account and say, none of this is mine. I don't care if it's on pennies. I don't care if it has a lot. 
None of it is mine. It's all a gift. Life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. And when in doubt, give it away. That's a mantra Anna and I try to live into, where not only do we have our our percentages that we give to the church and other aspects of charity, but we have, we're constantly looking and praying, Lord, show us who we can bless. Show us um, who's in need. And when in doubt, when I feel like, hey, would this be a responsible decision or, or not? We say, screw it, I'm giving it away. And it feels so good, guys. It feels so good. Because we will deceive ourselves into thinking, I earned these, I deserve these, I want more of these. I need to protect these. And it's so subtle, but you'll transfer your trust from God who is alive and active and not responsible sometimes, but always, always generous onto what you earn. And then when you do that, you'll harm people. You will. The structures of Cain are when we view what we have as our own. It's mine, I worked for it. And it can be as small as taking care of myself and it can grow as large as corporate greed, but to have more and more. It might be a lot or a little, but if it's viewed as mine, this is mine. The structure of Cain is right around the door. Notice the rich man didn't do violence to anyone. The violence was that he hoarded for himself rather than allowing God to use what he has. Rather than say, God, this surplus, what do you want to do with it? Who he is for others. The structures of Jubilee is when we can say it's all his. My resources aren't mine. My capital isn't mine. My intelligence or my networks is not mine. Any of it, it's not mine. That I am alive is a gift from God. And it's all his. I am all his. He bought me at a price. Therefore, I will be faithful with whatever he's given me. And some of you, he's given a lot and some of you not so much. There's parables about that where some people are given five talents and some people are given two and some people are given one. It's not the amount, it's how we view it. Therefore, I am rich toward God. I have the abundance of God's favor and life and love and I don't need what these riches signify. I can part with them, I can enjoy them. I don't need them and I don't fear losing them. They're his to use as he directs. And he's done this to people before and he's calling us to do it again. It's the reason why he's constantly asking his people to part with what they have. And to be clear, I just want to be clear, this is not a sermon of saying you should give to the church, okay? Though you should give to the church, all right? And I'll preach that another time. But that's not what this is about. This is bigger than that. This is looking at What do we have and do we really hold on to it or do we really offer it up? From my wealth to his gifts. And if you were here last week, what you know is what we want to do is uh, with each sermon, we want to examine what that means um, because I'm not Hope Brooklyn, we're Hope Brooklyn. And so we want to invite people who are part of uh, these various industries and these sectors to help us consider uh, the implications of this structurally and how we can be a part of imagining alternatives. So today... We have Trey Harrison, who's going to be joining us. Get up for Trey. Trey's a good friend. He's a trader at Goldman Sachs. Uh, he was a teacher with the Teach for America program. He's an unfortunate supporter of Liverpool Football Club, um, even though it's a good day. Won Champions League yesterday, no big deal. Kings uh, of Europe. 
married to Michelle, has little Seth, um, and he's going to help us sort of consider some of these structures of Cain in the economy and how we, whether we are working in financial institutions or not, how we can go from this attitude of viewing it as mine to all his. So, thank you, Trey, for helping us out. Not a problem. <laughs> and the first question I have is, where have you seen structures of Cain in the economy? Where have you seen a building up of bigger barns, viewing resources as one's own that can perpetuate violence against others due to an imbalance of resources? Sure, yeah. So in looking at that parable from Luke um, of the, uh, uh, the rich fool um, is, is, what it's, is what it's called, um, you see basically this hoarding of surplus, um, which essentially is greed. And uh, shocker, there's a lot of greed in our economy. <laughs> I don't know if anyone knew that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, 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 there, there is rampant greed, and the effects of that is essentially economic inequality. Um, and I think that's, again, not a surprise to anybody. Post the financial crisis with the Occupy Wall Street uh, movement, a lot of people have maybe been aware of that fact. Um, but what I want to kind of do is maybe contextualize a little bit more and show people exactly the magnitude of which there is deep inequality within our nation here. So um, I'm going to run you through a, a, a few different graphs. And as we said, uh, we're working with a smaller um, projector here. So it might be a little hard to see. So I'm going to try to explain it as best as possible. Uh, but essentially what this is here is a graph of, based on households in America, the percentage share of the total income that is made. And it's broken up into quintiles. So basically, take our population or take all of our households, chop it up into five equal groups. How much percentage share of the total income is generated in our nation is owned by those specific groups. So if you see this little dotted line kind of in the middle, ignore that for right now. The other lines are essentially the five different groups. And there's a few things to me that kind of jump out at this graph. One, if you look at the most recent data point, you can basically see those four other graphs are all trending downward. Um, and what this is basically showing that only the top 20% of income or the top 20% of income uh, generating households have been the only people since essentially the mid 60s or so that have actually seen an increase in their share of the total income. All right, so that means the bottom 80% are all in decline, yet the top 20% has generated essentially an increase of roughly 15% by looking at this chart. Um, the second thing to note is also that if you look at the most recent data, uh, or the most recent data point, you'll notice that the top 20% basically uh, account for over a half or over 50% of the total income generated. So again, we can kind of see that there is a working disparity between those who are at the top of the income pool versus those at the lower. Um, next graph, please. So this also basically takes, ah, sorry, actually, can we go back real quick? My fault, my fault. So I do want to talk about this dotted line because this dotted line is actually the top 5%. So we just talked about the quintiles. If we actually look at the top 5%, they've also seen an increase, actually bigger than the top 20%, which is roughly 30% based on this chart. So again, bottom 80% have all been in decline. Top 20% have basically seen a 15% increase since the 60s. And the top 5% has actually seen a 30% 30 30 increase. So that's a double of the top 20. Now to the next chart. So this next chart is showing something very similar. Um, I'm actually colorblind, Russ. What's that, the top, <laughs> the top line? The red. Red. So the red line. <laughs> the red line is essentially the exact same as the previous graph, although it's the top 1%. And if we look at it here, 
again, since the mid-60s, they've essentially seen a doubling of their share of the national income. All right, that's a growth of 200%. All right, so we talked about the top 20 was 15, the top five was 30, and the top one has seen a 200% increase in their income. And then graphed alongside of that is this other line. Blue. Blue line. All right. The blue line is essentially the percentage of families in poverty over that same time period. And what you can see is essentially it's unchanged. Yes, there's been some times when it actually dipped a little lower from where it started. It looks like that's roughly 9% around 1999, 2000 or so. But essentially over this exact same time period, all right, the families in poverty is basically be unchanged. So we see that as we move up in terms of the top percentiles of income earners across our nation, that you see more and more increase, wider disparity, and yet those at the bottom of our nation aren't getting any benefit, essentially. Now, I think that, you know, again, it's, it's not, you know, crazy in terms of people realizing that there is inequality. I think, though, once you lay it out like this and you see such disparity, the argument to it a lot of times is, oh, but, you know, we believe in the American dream. It's something that we internalize, we believe that if you work hard, if you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you can basically pull yourself out of whatever circumstances you might be in. And if you're in that bottom 20%, you can move into you know, that next quintile, the third quintile, the top quintile, whatever it might be. I, however, would push against that thinking and make a statement that essentially the American dream as we know it to be is how I kind of just defined it, is probably more of an illusion than reality for most people. And so this next chart, is referred to as the Great Gatsby Curve. And what this essentially tries to do is it compares across different countries the intergenerational earnings elasticity with inequality. Now, I know that probably sounds very complicated, and I'm not going to go into the, the deep calculations of each of these because it's outside the scope of this discussion. Happy to do so with anybody afterwards. But the horizontal um, axis here, which is inequality, is measured by what's called the Gini coefficient. And that's a common um, measurement that's used in statistics whenever comparing whether it's countries, states, cities, in terms of the inequality. And all it really is in simplistic terms is a ratio of top income earners to bottom income earners. So kind of similar to the graphs we just looked at. So the higher the Gini coefficient, the more inequality that specific area, or in this case country, has. So you want to be as far left as possible on this graph when it comes to the horizontal axis. On the vertical axis, the intergenerational earnings elast elasticity. This is essentially a way in which you try to get insight on how much is your socioeconomic status a function of your parents or the generation before you. So for instance, if I'm rich and I have kids, what's the likelihood they also end up being rich? Or if I'm poor and I have kids, what's the likelihood that they end up being poor? And so the way that this ratio works is essentially the higher your ratio is, the more rigid this particular system, or again, in this case, country, is in terms of your ability to mobilize across different economic classes. So on the vertical axis, you want to be as low as possible, because that means just because I was born into a poor house doesn't necessarily mean or the probability that I'll end up poor isn't as high as if I have a, high, uh, I'm a higher ratio on this particular vertical axis. That all makes sense? <laughs> you can all do a lecture about it later? Perfect. All right, so if you look, and for those of you who probably in the back can't see, you might say, oh, United States, we're almost like dead center. And I'll also make a note that 
this really is trying to show the relationship between the two. So if you just kind of look at this scatter plot here, you notice that with the immobility across economic classes tends to correlate with the higher the inequality in the particular country. And again, if you look and you see, oh, United States, we almost look like we're dead middle. All right, that's not great. Maybe the American dream isn't as much as a you know, successful story as you like to think it is relative to other countries. But hey, we're not all the way to the far right. Now, if you look a little closer, though, you'll notice that if you look for more of the developed nations, all right, you'll see that we're actually the worst off. So if you look at, for instance, there's Japan, there's some Western European countries, there's some Scandinavian countries, these developed nations that we would be more on par with, actually, relative to this particular graph, seem to be in a much better state. And we only fare better than some of the more emerging market companies, or sorry, emerging market countries, which you would expect to have higher inequality rates. So, you know, I, I'll also say we should take this with a grain of salt. I think it's sometimes tough to make cross-country um, comparisons. For instance, the size of the United States versus the size of Norway, there's some differences there, obviously, a little harder to effectively have a successful or even economy in terms of socioeconomic status. But it's very striking that compared to all the developed nations, we seem to be a little far off. And so, again, that's why I push back on the fact that you know, if we think simply that we have this American dream, that, you know, people might be born into a certain socioeconomic status, that they can climb out of that, not necessarily true. And given the wide disparity of inequality, driven by greed, um, we would try to make this better in our, in our nation. Um, so that's, uh, that again was the, uh, the Great Gatsby Curve. So, uh, I, I, again, kind of in summary, in terms of the actual, I guess we say the, the structures of Kane, um, given that we have rampant greed, given that we have this large inequality um, from a socioeconomic status in our country, and the effect that people can't necessarily pull themselves out of it, um, we see these, these, these structures in essentially our country. That's good, that's good. Um, so then, that all being true, and we're the people of Jubilee. We are called to imagine alternatives, to not view it as mine, but to listen to what, um, how God might be uh, inviting us into, into different realities. How have you seen that? How have you seen people, companies, um, uh, be people of Jubilee, whether all forms of resources, viewing it not as theirs, but as, but as God's? Right, yeah, and I, I, yeah, I would also say, you know, the people that have done this have, have, have noted that with the great kind of wealth concentration in our nation, um, you also see this concentration of power. And so a lot of that bleeds into our political systems. For instance, um, you know, the, the effect that whether it be high net worth individuals, uh, large corporations, super PACs, that they can affect policy that's done in our, our nation is definitely grown. Um, extensively. And a lot of that has to do with the rising cost of, of campaigns. So, for instance, I think um, in the 2018 midterm elections, the statistics that were done, in order to win a seat in the House, um, I think the, the fundraising campaigns were around uh, a million and a half uh, dollars versus for a Senate was like $10 million. So, to run some type of like grassroots campaign, um, it's very hard to do that from individual donors. And so, you see politicians, you know, kind of have to you know, dig in the pockets of, of those 
those different entities or individuals who have self-interest. And um, this creates this cycle where, uh, you know, you have politicians who are relying on the wealth and the surplus storage of particular individuals who are only trying to act in such a way for their own self-interest, affect policies, and that in turn creates them or lets them build up more surplus and this cycle just continues. So there, there are definitely, I think, you know, Washington, in my personal opinion, I don't think has done a great job of, of, of addressing this, but there are individuals and also some companies that have. Um, in finance in particular, what's interesting is you're seeing individuals speak out about this. Uh, Jamie Dimon, for instance, who is the CEO of JP Morgan, earns approximately $30 million in compensation a year. Uh, in his annual letter to shareholders last year, which usually is a way in which the CEO says, hey, this is the forward guidance of the firm. This is how we're gonna generate more revenues. This is how we're going to increase uh, shareholder uh, value. He actually took out a very large portion of the, uh, of the letter to shareholders and said, hey, like, we have issues in this economy, we have issues in our society, we have you know, very wide disparaging uh, levels of wealth, of income, and it's something that we need to fix, and actually gave out solutions in it. And so you know, that's one example of an individual. Um, as Russell said, I work at Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs started a, um, a donor-advised fund back in, I think, 2006, 2007 or so called Goldman Sachs Gives. It essentially um, has given in the tune of like $1.7 billion, I think, in nonprofit organizations or different initiatives um, and are very generous with the employee match of charitable donations as well as for partners at the firm, which you can think of as kind of the um, executive individuals that are very senior, they actually earmark a portion of their compensation uh, where they essentially say you have to give this to charity. Um, and so I think a lot of this social responsibility is definitely coming into play, definitely in the finance industry. There's also, you know, probably the most notable and very impactful is Bill and Melinda Gates with Warren Buffett um, started essentially what's called the, um, the giving pledge, and if you're not aware of it, they are essentially trying to get billionaire families to pledge on giving away half of their entire wealth. And that's very impactful. Um, again, as we talked about in those different graphs, the further you go up in the percentile of income, and we just talked about income, wealth is actually much bigger divide because as you can probably guess, um, the high net worth individuals not only make a lot of money, but they also have a lot of assets, whether that's physically traded, stocks and bonds, if that's hard assets like real estate, the divide in terms of what their wealth is to the rest of the population is actually much bigger. Um, and so doing something like that's very impactful because I think on the Forbes uh, billionaires list, um, Jeff Bezos, who's the CEO of Amazon, and Bill Gates were the number one and number two richest persons in our country. Uh, their combined wealth was more than the bottom 50% of our entire country. And so if you have these super ultra high net worth individuals that are committing to saying, hey, we're going to give away half of our entire net worth, um, that can be very impactful in terms of redistribution of resources. You know, um, again, when you have like $80 billion and you're like, oh, yeah, I'll give away 40 and still keep 40 <laughs> for myself. Like, oh, yeah, thanks. But, um, but still, again, getting back to the fact of having surplus, and they could say, no, I'm going to hold on to it. I'm going to pass it on to my generation so that, you know, Bill Gates says, never will a Gates ever have to worry about financial concerns. Um, 
they think otherwise. They think that they should be, should be sharing. So it's, it's interesting to see individuals as well as corporations have more of this social responsibility, um, even outside of necessarily like a, a, a Christian lens. Totally. And what about us? I mean, for most of us in this room, we are non-financial institution people. We, we probably, unless someone's got the next big idea, the next big Facebook, is not going to be number one and two on that list. How can we be people of Jubilee? How can we go from viewing stuff as our own to uh, making it available to, to God and to others? Right. So I think a lot of times when people talk about um, inequality, a lot of the times they point to the upper echelon of income earners or, or wealth generators and say, hey, this is kind of for like you guys to fix because you're the ones that are sitting on all the resources. Um, I think us as folks who, you know, operate under a different system um, and, 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 and believe, believe the teachings and, 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 and feel a different type of way, we know that while I'm nowhere near $80 billion in net worth, I still have surplus in resources that I can help others with. And again, that's not necessarily monetary, and Russell's you know, alluding to this earlier, that could be you know, your time, that can be your relationships, your contacts, um, that could be information and knowledge that you know. And in what ways can we be introspective and say, how can I share the surplus that I have with others um, and kind of act in the love of God instead of just sitting on it and hoarding it for myself and my own. That's good. I right, give us our three steps. If you're with us, uh, if, you, if it's your first time with us, um, we give three steps of every sermon, a personal step, a social step, and a structural step. So what is it? So I basically just kind of talked about the personal step. Again, you know, think of the ways in which you have surpluses in your life. How can that be a benefit to others? Not hoarding it. Um, and also think about ways in which, you know, you might be acting out in a certain type of way that could be hurting others because of your particular level of, of prominence or the resources that you have. Uh, social, safe families for children. So, you know, safe families, essentially they do this, right? They, they look for families that are in, uh, you know, tight situations or in, uh, or in need of resources and they go in, they, they give them resources, they hook them up with, you know, volunteers, et cetera, that'll help pull them out of their, per, uh, th their current predicament. Um, and again, the sharing of uh, resources. And then structural, um, I think in order to be a part of the solution, you have to understand the problem. And so I think just staying informed. And you can go Google you know, economic inequality, you get thousands of links you can read through. Um, but I think it's important to stay on top of how there are structures in society, whether that be on a national level, a state level, a city level, a local level in your neighborhood. Um, what are the structures being put in place that could be disenfranchising a certain percentage of the population? And so uh, Noam Chomsky, who Russell's definitely quoted before, uh, he's probably considered one of the best intellectuals of our time, I might say. Uh, he was a linguistics professor of MIT, rose to notoriety probably during um, the 60s in terms of his anti-war uh, um, activism and, and demonstrations. He has a documentary um, called Requiem for the American Dream. Um, it used to be on Netflix. I don't think it is anymore. It is on Amazon, or if you're savvy, you can get it on YouTube. <laughs> but you should, you should pay for it on Amazon <laughs> instead of searching through the 20 links, some of which will be in German on YouTube and seeing it for free. Just saying. Uh, but I think it's great. It actually you know, goes into 
a lot of detail of the things that I kind of brushed on and, and actually shows over the course of our American history how, you know, basically starting from the Gilded Age and the Roaring Twenties um, and post the finan or not the financial crisis, but post the Great Depression, how over time these, you know, systems of Cain, essentially the structures of Cain have came into place and disenfranchised uh, a, a wide population of, of our society. Awesome. Can we give it up for Trey? I want to invite the band back up. If you're serving communion, would you come forward? And could we stand to our feet real quick? I know uh, some of this stuff, you might not be a numbers person. So you hear those numbers and you're like, whoa, that feels really big. It feels, um, it, it, can, it can feel less spiritual and more practical and brass tacks. But here's the thing, if we go back to the very beginning, there is no Jesus without Jubilee, without the lives we're called to live without how we're invited into these structures. And there is no jubilee but through Jesus. And so what I want us to do, if you would, is to close your eyes and put your hands in front of you, palms up. In the Bible, you constantly see a focus on hands. We lay hands on one another when we pray. The, the, the right hand is a sign of, of power and strength. And often we're invited to put our hands up as a sign of surrender. This isn't ours. None of it's ours. My breath is not mine. And so God, my prayer is that each person in this room, wherever they may be in their relationship with you, that you would invite them, that you would speak to them. And reveal to them where they're hoarding on to something. Where they're keeping you at arm's length, where their hands are actually closed fisted instead of open and available. Because God, we want to be the people that says, it's none of it's mine, it's all yours. This family is not mine, it's all yours. These resources are not mine, they're all yours. We want to be a part of the new kingdom, the kingdom where none of it's anyone's. It's all yours. And it's all for everyone. Help us be people of Jubilee. And as we come to your table, as we receive your body and your blood, would you stamp that deep in our souls? Because that gift is a gift. We didn't earn your grace. We'll never earn your grace. We'll never deserve it. We deserve nothing and we get everything. So we come to your table today and we receive the abundance of your generosity. Make us generous people too. It's in your name. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.